and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million countless, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I have to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning. morning. Welcome to the first day of Aspects of Practice, our fall practice period, where we're studying the Eightfold Path. And our speaker today is Seisen Ikushin, Pure Spring, Nourishing the Heart, Nourishing Heart, Jerry Oliva. And Jerry began practice in 1989 at Green Gulch Farm and has practiced at Berkeley Zen Center since 1996. And since then, she has received priest ordination and Dharma transmission from Sojin Roshi. She's a retired pediatrician with a focus on community health. So thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Karen. So I want to welcome everyone. Welcome. <laughs> welcome to the 2022 edition of Aspects of Practice. As you know, or most of you know, each year we have an opportunity to participate in a four-week practice intensive led by the senior students, which has two sashins, weekly classes, bi-weekly Dharma talks, and the practice supports us. The practice is meant to continue our dedication to awaken with all beings. For each of this, this requires a decision-making process. Process about putting aside other activities and making room for Dharma study, making room for our daily schedule of various activities. This might include consulting with family members, roommates, getting permission from our bosses. We look at the possible impact on other people, other people in our lives and how, the, how our practice and our activities not only affect us or benefit us, but what about the other people as well? So we have a broader mind that includes taking stock of our life at that time, taking care of everybody in our life, as well as ourselves and our practice. So, so what, what we do usually, um, or and we encourage people to do is to set an intention during practice period. Some intention, whether it's an intention for deepening your practice, whether it's an intention to uh, be more consistent, whether it's an intention to open your mind to different teachings that you haven't experienced before, but there is an, an intention. And then when we set our intention and we make our decisions, we're asked to fill out a form. And it used to be a paper form. Um, and on that form have all the activities, as you know. So we, we, get, we get the form, we say how, how many morning zazens we're attending, how many afternoons, how many classes. And that becomes kind of the action associated with this intention in our minds. We want to practice. We want to help other beings. And this is what it looks like for aspects. We have this intention. We, we put it on a Google Doc. 
And in the old days, when we had a practice period with Sashimi, with a uh, Shuseau, the Shuseau would actually look at everybody's application every day and, uh, and notice, um, notice if you uh, are in fact attending. And if you go to Tassajara for a practice period, they have a, they have a sheet by the Zendo and they actually monitor so this is the extreme version. This is not the Berkeley Zen Center version, but it's 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 a way for us to get feedback or to see what how are we? We have to have this intention. We have a volition to act. That process is happening, and this is all, um, and this is part of what we're doing. Is we're having making uh, uh, dedicating ourselves in a way that we with a very conscious choice. And then we get to look at our calendar and look at our behavior and look at how it's going, you know, if we can't do it, it doesn't mean that's the end of the world, right? I mean, no one is going to come and tell you, or you're not going to tell yourself, but it's, it's not a way to judge yourself, but just to assess, to pay attention. You know, why didn't I make it to early Zazen that day? You know, why didn't I tune in online as I said I was going to do for certain things? So in doing this whole process, of deciding to come to practice period, signing up for practice period, then we, then we usually mark our calendars, right? So we actually have a, a, a physical representation in front of us if we look at our calendars regularly. This is my intention. This is what I, I'm about during this period. So to me, this process is, is actually following the Eightfold Path, which is the theme of our practice. We, we open our minds to what's there. We think about it. We may talk to others about it. And then we act. And then we meditate. We practice mindfulness. So we're actually doing the practice in the, pra in the process of getting here. And then each time we come, we are really enacting the Eightfold Path in some way. And I wanted to um, just uh, read Thich Nhat Hanh's introduction to the Eightfold Path, just to emphasize the importance of this teaching and how important it was to the Buddha. So in, uh, in, in as you can say, the Heart of Buddha's Teaching, which is one of the texts we're using, when he talks about the Eightfold Noble Path, when the Buddha was 80 years old and about to pass away, a young, um, a young man named Sudada came to see him. And Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, thought it would be too exhausting for the master to see anyone. But the Buddha overheard Sudama's request and said, Ananda, please invite him in. Even as he was dying, the Buddha was willing to give an interview. Sudada asked, world honored one, are the other religious teachers in Magadha and Kashala, fully enlightened, the Buddha knew he had only a short time to live and that answering such a question would be a waste of precious moments. When you have the opportunity to ask a teacher about the Dharma, ask a question that can change your life. The Buddha replied, Subhada, it is not important whether they are fully enlightened. The question is whether you want to liberate yourself. If you do, practice the Noble Eightfold Path. 
Wherever that noble path is practiced, joy and peace and insight are there. The Buddha offered the, the Eightfold Path in his first Dharma talk. He continued to teach the Eightfold Path for 45 years, and in his last Dharma talk, spoken to Sadama, he offered the Eightfold Noble Path. So this is not, we may not think about it a lot, but this is a very primary, basic, basic way to live, not, not study to live, study too, but mostly to live. So I'm inspired today, or maybe by way of transparency, um, to talk about my own journey in, in being here today. It's been a rocky journey. Uh, I had signed up or agreed to be part of this and agreed to lead the Sashin months ago, maybe three months ago or so. And then a number of life, life events. Life events kicked in, right? Real life. Not just my hypothetical liking of wanting to do this. Life. So the first thing that happened was I um, was coming down the Sanaki stairs about eight weeks ago after uh, a priest meeting, go, uh, on a, and I shared the computer screen with Lori, and I, my knee went out. I had a bad knee for many years, having done many foolish adventures with my knee. Um, but it just went out, and I could, there was no, I tried to grab something, and there was nothing to grab, and I fell, and I twisted my knee badly. Uh, and I just got an MRI that told me I'd actually micro fractures in my tibia, which I didn't know before. So I've been kind of rehabbing my knee without knowing I'd actually had fractures, but that's another story. But um, you'll notice that I had to be very careful about bowing. Some of you who are close up could see, I mean, I always was proud of this person, right, who didn't use her hands you know, who had strong legs and could do these nine bows. And what about, you know, I, I'm really cool. I don't know, maybe I thought that. I don't know if I really thought that, but I felt good about it, right? I was really doing the prostrations the way the prostrations are supposed to be doing. And I'm old and I did it and I kept on doing it. Great, you know, delusion, delusion, delusion. <laughs> so here I am wondering if I'm going to be able to walk even. Right? So that's the first thing that happened. And then the second thing um, was that another delusional event um, was that um, my husband Paul and I decided to go to Carmel Bach Festival this year. And this is something that we used to go to every year with Mel and Liz. And it was, it was really kind of in honor of Mel's funeral. You know, after Mel's funeral, this was like a way of somehow going back and partially living that we were going to do it you know i was limping with a cane <laughs> and we were going anyway and um i you know did all kinds of deluded things oh oh it's really better i'll walk down to the ocean anyway um so i was in delu i was deluding myself um and then we tried to be uh, we tried to be very careful. We deluded ourselves about the fact that the Omicron variant was everywhere. And lo and behold, the last night of the concert, my husband suddenly said, I don't think I can get up and walk. 
So from the place where we were listening to music, we had to get back to our car to get back to where we were staying. And his, he had to put his arm on my shoulder and he pretty soon couldn't, I mean, he, I was supporting most of his body weight. And by the next day, I also was feeling really ill and nauseous and starting to cough. So we got COVID. So we got COVID and it was six weeks before practice period. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not even going to think about practice period because it was kind of like I was actually um, I was actually uh, just at that point, what this whole situation did was get my attention, <laughs> really get my attention. Um, I had to pay attention to every moment. Um, my husband was bedridden. We didn't have any. I was, I was trying to get in-home support. I couldn't get to the agencies or they didn't take our insurance or whatever. And I am limping and I am carrying trays up and down the stairs of food three times a day or cooking or whatever. And um, this was the reality. And there was no room in that reality for me to think about anything two weeks away or four weeks away. It was actually this experience of really almost moment to moment where he would be dazed, fall out of bed, I'd have to call the EMTs. I mean, this was dramatic, right? This was dramatic. There was no room for me to worry about, oh, am I going to be able to be doshi for sushi? <laughs> that was like so far away from what I was thinking about. It was like, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do so that I might be able to sit and rest or what's going on with my knee or what's going on with anything. It was more a matter of that living, um, that living moment to moment, no thoughts of the future. Um, at one point, I, a thought came to my mind, am I just numb from trauma? You know, is this PTSD from other experiences with my mother when she was sick and whatever? But, it, but I don't, it maybe, a bit, maybe at the beginning, but what it was is that it totally got my attention. There was no way that I could actually survive this time without being fully present all the time. It was a, it was a very, you know, it was a whole kind of thing for me. I, 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 I was there because I had to do, do things. I was there because I, my compassion was needed. I was there because, you know, I was there because whatever was in front of me had to happen, had to be done. So there's, there was no, there was no mind going on about what should I do or how, or am I doing it? Not even am I doing it well or not. It was like, I don't have, that's, I can't, I can't waste that time. So I, then as a, as weeks passed, I start, um, someone, someone, um, someone asked me at some point during this thing on a phone call, um, a couple of weeks after the after I was into COVID, and someone said to me, um, "Well, when do you think you'll be able to get back to practice?" <laughs> and I kind of, you know, to myself laughed because thinking, "This is practice, you know. This is hard practice. This is bringing zazen moment to moment in my life. This is really a practice in an intensity that I haven't. It's 
as intense as any sashimi I'd ever been to. Um, so it was kind of interesting. And I, um, and I, then I started looking at myself and um, I did get this thought about uh, just the basic teaching of um, I think <laughs> of just Suzuki's Roche's basic teaching of well, was I studying? You know, was I studying myself? Was I monitoring my 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 thoughts? And and, and on some level, that started to happen. I started to watch my mind. I started to notice if, say, say a, a, an, I was irritable or felt put upon or whatever, but I was there to see it, you know, because I was so present, I was there to watch this whole show of all of the, you know, unwholesome, little unwholesome seeds that popped up, you know, oh, I always have to do everything. I'm always the one who has to take care, you know, whatever these old patterns, they came, but they didn't matter. You know, I saw them and they didn't matter. And I was, for some reason I was thinking, um, so I, I just thought about Suzuki Roshi's chapter in um, Zen Mind Beginner's Mind of, of studying yourself. And he said, study the self to have some deep feeling about Buddhism is not the point. We just do what we do, like eating supper and going to bed. This is Buddhism. And I thought, yeah, like, falling down and getting up and uh, getting food and getting and preparing food. This is Buddhism, right? Being with that, that for the moment. And in, the, in this chapter, he quotes Dogen to study with study that we all know and I've heard before. To study Buddhism is to study ourselves. To study ourselves is to forget ourselves. When you become attached to the temporal expression of your true nature, it is necessary to talk about Buddhism, or else you will think the temporal expression is it. But this particular expression of it is not it. And yet, at the same time, it is. For a while it is, for the smallest particle of time, this is it. But it is not always so. The very next instant, it is not so. Thus, this is this is not this is not it. So that you will realize the fact it is necessary to study Buddhism, but the purpose of studying Buddhism is to study ourselves and forget ourselves. When we forget ourselves, we actually are the true activity of the big existence or reality itself. When we realize this fact, there's no problem whatsoever in the world, and we can enjoy our life without feeling any difficulties. The purpose of our practice is to be aware of this fact. So I really did feel um, that when I was doing these things, I had I I I was for I was kind of watching my behavior and then um, going and then being always being ready and always being ready for something else to happen, being alert whatever happened. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, Suzuki talks about uh, 
I think, uh, in not always so that uh, sitting like a frog. You know, I was sitting like a frog. I was walking like a frog. I was alert, had to be able to respond. And that, so I got to, um, so I really got to watch myself in a way that I had not. And, and, and the ground was unsteady. It was unsteady. There was nothing to rely on. And I, um, I remembered uh, another chapter of Suzuki Roshi's, um, I think from not always, so it was stand, stand by, up, by, up by the ground. And he says, the ground is not always the same. It can be a stick sometimes, or it can be a stone. It can even be water. The ground means everything, not just ground. It means practice our way without having to repeat the same experience. In fact, we can never repeat the same experience. All we can do is to live moment by moment and seeing whatever happens as just this. Suzuki Roshi says, right now it is hot, but it's not always hot. Sometimes it'll be cold. So our expectations are often diluted and we make many mistakes. If you think you can always stand up by the ground don't, and, and you don't mind falling on the ground, you'll fall quite easily. You may have the, the idea that it is all right to fall to the ground. I can easily stand up on the ground. But if you become complacent, you can always stand up by the ground. You've forgotten that the ground it can be a water or a stick. The ground is really empty. So, and that's, you know, that's as basic as it gets. The ground is always empty. There's no solid ground ever that lasts more than a second or two. And that it's just deluded of us to think so. And so I basically, I, I, I got to, I mean, all I can say is it was kind of like balancing on some unsteady platform in the water, you know, not knowing if a wave was coming, not know, knowing if a, a, a current would drive me away, not knowing what happened, just being fully present. And as time passed, something kind of interesting happened, um, which was I started to, um, when, when I ever started to think, feel sorry for myself, <laughs> or get what I would consider, you know, a, a unwholesome self, self-referential thing come up. I started doing kind of an exercise of what about all these other people? You know, what about all these other people who have COVID right now? What about all these other people who have polio right now or monkeypox right now or who are sick wherever they are, who don't have food, who don't have water, who don't have the help that I could have from some friends. Um, and what happened then was that I actually felt my mind expand. I felt like relieved. There was this feeling of being with millions of other people who were all facing sickness, old age, and death with me. We were all going through this, and I had realize that I live so often in this other deluded reality of, but I can make it better, or, you know, 
it's not going to be that way for me, or, 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 or what other I, way I defend myself against recognizing that, that I'm always part of this. I'm always part of this vast world of suffering and joy. But definitely, in this case, I was, um, I was really feeling that I was participating in this great, you, you, this great with millions of other people in some something that was challenging, but also for me, it was mind expanding. It changed my my view, and it changed my view of the inclusiveness of having all this, of being with all these other people, and how it how I could how it could be there. So then I had a humbling thought, <laughs> which was, okay, I'm really not feeling well. This, this is really not going so well, this recovery. Um, I have intractable cough and nausea, even weeks after and so forth. I, and then I said, well, you know, if I can't do it, another priest can do it. That's all. What's the worst thing that can happen? I can't do it. Another priest does it. You know, what about if I, what about, what about if I am a little cloudy, which I uh, get, you know? How about the talk? Well, I said, you know, if, if all my, I practiced for so many years, if I can't say something helpful, you know, that, that's all I need to do. And if I can't do the talk, There'll be somebody else who can do the talk. So I kind of left that anxiety about this. And, um, and then in the last couple of weeks, I, you know, my husband got up and started walking around and walking downstairs and I started feeling well and the reality changed and it became, oh, looks like I can follow through on my commitment. So it was kind of a miracle, actually, um, but here I was. So when you see me sitting in a chair, it's very hard for me to adjust to being a person who's sitting in a chair. <laughs> it's very hard for me to be a person who can't quite bow because my knee is still in trouble. But that's how it is. And that's the mind of the right, the right view of, of the Eightfold Path, the mind that understands that all of this is just all of this. So I wanted to share, uh, let me see where you are. Okay. I wanted to share some, some stuff from, um, early stuff from Bhikkhu Bodhi's book called The Social and Communal Harmony, Buddhist Teachings from the Pali Canon on the, on the right understanding, right view and right understanding. Because I, I think it's helpful to me um, uh, there's some funny error message here you've been signed out because your account is signed in from another device and then you know about that so um, for me I like to go back to the polycanon version of things where all began and then skip back to our more contemporary look because I always learn something, you know, it's always gives me another perspective. So I thought I'd share it. So he titles this, right view comes first. And what is right view? 
There was nothing given, nothing sacrificed, nothing offered. There is no fruit or result of fruit in bad actions. There is no this world, no other world. There is no mother, no father. There are no beings spontaneously reborn. There are in a world no ascetics and Brahmins or of right conduct and right practice who, having realized this world and the other world for themselves by direct knowledge, make them known to others. This is wrong view. So he says, well, what is right view? And he makes a distinction uh, between the right view of, um, or include, he wants to include both the view of our view of the world, our view of the universe as, and all of the inputs, he calls it influxes, all of the influxes, all the inputs to our consciousness that are external. So, so he's got, he says here, what is right view is what is subject to the influxes, partaking of merit, ripening and acquisitions. There is what is given, sacrificed and offered. There is fruit and result of good and bad actions. There is the world, this world and the other world. <clears throat> That's love from coffee. Uh, there are the world ascetics and Brahmins of right conduct and right practice who having realized the world and the other world for themselves by direct knowledge, make them known to us. So right view <clears throat> is our taking in of all the inputs, all the perceptions, formations, consciousness, all the stuff we our input from our minds, input from our, our conditioning as children. All of this is part of right view, sort of. <laughs> in other words, we have to have that in our right view. We have to be, we have to look hard at, at what our conditioning is and see it. Not that we own it or like it, but that seeing these influxes and understanding them, that's part of right view. So not putting away the, the, the old baggage or the, bad, or the bad stuff. The bad stuff is there. The good stuff is there. Our parents are there for better or for worse. That, that, those are influxes. And then he said, then there's this other, this other right view. And what is right, right, right view that is noble and free of influxes? Super mundane, a factor of the path, the wisdom, the faculty of wisdom, the power of wisdom, the in investigation of state's enlightenment factor, the path factor of right view, and one whose mind is noble, whose mind is without influxes, who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path. This is right view that is noble, free of influxes, mundane, and a factor of the path. So then he, he kind of takes apart this, these paragraphs, and he includes, so he's including understanding wholesome and unwholesome roots. So we have looking at ourselves our study of ourselves, part of our right view, so that we don't go to thinking and action and speaking um, with wrong view, is seeing the unwholesome roots. And he, he kind of puts an emphasis on, on the, um, uh, on the, on the, what you call it, the, uh, oh great, see this is COVID life, <laughs> the 10 precepts, <laughs> or maybe I don't like following them, I don't know what it is. Some, 
when I think I, I think when I was doing some ceremony, I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember some of the precepts that I was supposed to be reciting. But at any rate, so subconsciously, who knows? I don't like to talk about them. Um, anyway, that's that's one part of right view. He says, and then he says that another part of right view is understanding karma. So most of us know that in, in our practice, karma is action. And, and we are aware of our actions and we are aware of the effects of our actions. And we are aware that these, these actions have, when they have these effects, we look at them and we see if they're beneficial effects and we see if they're not beneficial effects. And that's how we, that's how we practice with our acting and our speaking. If we step in it by speaking and say, using hurtful words or whatever, those, that comes back to us. That's, that's understanding karma. It's understanding where the, where the words came from, recognizing the words as they leave our mouths and recognizing the effect. So that's part of right view is seeing that that sequence. And then he says, um, then he talks about um, in karma, something I kind of alluded to when I first talked about this, he talks about the role of volition. In other words, when we decide that we want to practice in a certain way, we have free will, we make a choice to act. It's some, not something that happens. So the point that the role that he, he talks about, it is volition monks that I call karma. For having willed, one acts by body, speech, and mind. And what is the diversity of karma? There is karma to be experienced in hell, karma to be experienced in the animal realm, karma to be experienced in the realm of the afflicted spirits, karma to, uh, karma to be expected in the human world, karma to be expected in the diva world. This is called the karma of diversity. So karma is not, not one place, right? And what is the result of karma? The result of karma, I say, is threefold. In this life or the next life or in rebirth, but we, we won't get into that. But this is called the diversity of karma. And what is the cessation of karma? The noble eightfold math path is the way leading to the cessation of karma, right view and right concentration. And the last, um, then, and then he also adds the essential role of studying the self, which is what I've been talking about. And he has a section called when you know for yourselves. And the point he makes is that the Buddha said, when the Buddha said, the, the Buddha often said, what do you think? What do you think? Um, that, that, that our, our mind, um, that, that there's this studying of the self, this, this perception of our right view of our big mind, involves our processing, our ingesting, our penetrating, both the Dharma and both ourselves. That it's, it is, it's essential for us 
And he says a couple of things here. Come, Columbus, do not go by oral tradition, but when you know for yourselves, these things are unwholesome, these things are blameworthy, these things are censured by the wise. These things, if undertaken and practiced, lead harm and suffering. You should abandon them. It is because of this that what was said. What do you think, Columbus, when a person is without greed and delusion, hate and delusion? Is it for the welfare or for his harm? For his welfare, Bonte. Columbus is a person not overcome by greed, hatred, and delusion, whose mind is not obsessed by them, does not destroy life and does not take what is not given, transgression with another's wife or speak falsehood. Does he encourage others to do likewise? Will this lead to the welfare and happiness in the long run? So he's basically putting back on the on the on the his students or on the members of his community. What do you think? What you, all you have to do is take this stuff in and look at it and you know, you know, it doesn't, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that you have to hear uh, an, enlight, an enlightened teacher necessarily tell you that what you can see with your eyes, if you open your eyes and if you actually open to what's in front of you, you can see, if you say something, an expression on someone's face changes, for example, if you hit a wrong nerve. You know, you can see the, the results of your greed in one way or another. You can see these. It, it takes that kind of internalization to actually have right view. It's not, it takes your own embodying of the teaching in that way. That's what he's saying. So, let me see where we are here in my time. Okay. So, um, as I began here, after ingesting this, to go back into the world to all, in the last couple of weeks, just to, to re-enter and, and go from the place of great awareness and expansiveness, I went immediately back to um, habitual mind. And in, in some, you know, and, and found myself, you know, I because it wasn't like, oh, great, this is going to be life changing, and now I'm going to just be perfect, or, or I'm going to, I'm really going to know now. I'm really not going to, I'm really not going to be, I'm not going to be my, I'm not going to see my usual, you know, my usual stuff. And that is, of course, another great delusion. Um, so I have to, I have to share this because it was so funny. So I, I went to lunch with a friend for the first time. I mean, in, you know, because I had a long positive COVID test. I decided to go to um, Lake Chalet for lunch with a friend, another gray-haired person. And I am looking over the shoulder of my friend, and I see eyelashes about that long coming out of the eyes of a woman with very bright, colored golden hair. And I'm just amazed, you know, it's like, what is it? You know, I, I haven't seen this. And I, I, I said some very unskillful things to my friend about, you know, why in the world would anybody put this horrible stuff on their face? And what's going on with women now? And, you know, she, I think she had a very tight 
revealing shirt and she you know she had some tattoos all over her arms or whatever and i i just had this my mother came out of me my mother's <laughs> voice came out of my mouth i was so embarrassed and luckily my friend who's listening um said you're very retro <laughs> and i looked then i looked around the room and there were of course everyone was younger than me and there were all these kind of hip young women at different tables many some of them won lunch dates and whatever they were black white yellow whatever they were this whole sea of oakland was all around me and all these long eyelashes and all this you know red braids and long eyelashes and uh, tight shirts and tattoos and i'm saying oh my god jerry you know i had this here you go you thought you were you know you had this here you go you are um acting like an old lady you're acting like, like you know you're an old lady and you i always thought of myself as somebody who kept up with the times you know fought the styles or whatever i never got to i never got to tattoos because i didn't like the pain of it but but here i was and i realized this is how it is now and you have been sleeping and now you see that this is what it is that right now this is the style this is what people are doing they enjoy it they're having fun they feel like they look cool you know what business it is it of yours you know you don't have you it's not my it's not it's not my business first of all right <laughs> why should i even bother waste my time having judgment about other people you know when it's not my business and it makes me i feel like a fool so it was a very humbling experience after this you know very deep experience of going through the covid i go back and there's there, there's the worst of me that i could imagine coming out i thought oh well so much for that but it did um it did bring to mind something else that i wanted to wanted to mention before i um as we go as we think about going forward in the eightfold path um, and that is change and change and adapting to change and being compassionate about change. So, because it's exactly, exactly that, like who am I to look at these people and have any opinion whatsoever about them? They're not hurting anybody, you know, no harm is, there's no harm happening. So, so that feeling of change and and that whole theme of change which i think if i can get my glasses on again made me start to think about change in the sangha um you know we've had such a challenging three or four years with sojin's illness sojin's death a new abbot um new ways of practicing practicing online practicing every which way um, and that along with all the societal factors that have changed over time. Um, the, um, they've all impacted us and they're very rapidly going one from another. We don't get a chance to recover from this onslaught of change. So I started to think back though, you know, when I thought about, oh gee, all this change is happening, it's unsettling sometimes. 
And then I started to think back of my experience in BZC. So I've been here for almost 30 years. And when I first came to BZC, I looked around the room and there were white men, young white men. And most of them were sitting full lotus. Most of them had really straight backs. Most of them did the forms in very formal ways. Um, and I, but I didn't care much. I mean, I looked around, I saw that. I didn't see very many women. And I, you know, saw that the people leading things were all men. The only priests were men at that time here. Maybe mainly was here part of the time, but not much. There were, you know, people who were the board president or whatever there. I just saw men. But at that time, I had so much going on in my own life that I just didn't, all I wanted to do was come and sit anyway. And it didn't matter to me. I didn't feel, I just, I just sat quietly for about five or six years without participating in Sangha at all. But then I noticed, and a lot of people, because a lot of people there uh, that were here then had a lot of experience with sitting at Green Gulch for long periods of time or going to Tassajara for long periods of time. So a lot of people had that view of practice, that monastic looking view of practice, and were kind of wanting to practice that way. Um, but over time, uh, things, you know, things started to change in lots of different ways. One of the ways it changed was that some people that came were older or disabled. So those people couldn't sit cross-legged. They had to sit in chairs. And some of them sat had to sit in benches. And then um, the, the Americans for Disabilities Act was passed and we woke up to the fact that we had no ramps. And that there were people who wanted to come that were in wheelchairs and they couldn't because we didn't have ramps. So we built ramps. And then we had some people who had some hearing issues. And so instead of everybody sitting in their seats, we had chairs closer to the front for people with hearing issues. And we, and we even had, we had one person, everybody know Clay, Clay Taylor for one, couldn't sit up, he had to lie down. And then we had, as we know, somebody sitting in a recliner doing zazen. So we changed our picture of the sangha. It was different, it wasn't the same. Now we have lots of, we have people very comfortable in chairs, right? We don't even think about it. We have people able to come in and whatever. And we have a disabilities group that started as well during, during that period of time. And at some point, the women started acting up. <laughs> and the women started questioning what was going on, what was coming from the front seat, for example. And um, people objected. There were emails, there were discussions. And women started saying, well, let's talk about this. So different groups of women got together. And then there be that one, one group solidified into a, a women's dharma group. And then we decided that we were going to have women's sashims twice a year. And pretty soon, more women came. More women began to show up. More women began to be active or verbal. And pretty soon we had women priests. In fact, we have more women priests now, right? And men, we're over, we're over. And some people didn't like the women's sashims, even some women. 
saying, well, they're, not, they're really not sashims because you do some small group talking during them. And it doesn't feel like you're following the real model of sashim. And um, But then we persisted, and then she persisted, right? <laughs> and then we started to have talks from women ancestors, and we studied in a practice period a few years ago. We studied the hidden lamp, all of us together, for a practice period. So pretty soon, women's issues were okay, and women were around, and women became more comfortable. And then it became more openly, there were women that that were, came to the women's session, you know, got involved with some of the women's issues that were gay. And they then more, and pretty soon they were more comfortable, but they were not always more comfortable. There was talk with the, you know, the, the abbot, and again, we had discussions. And then, and then we, we, we adjusted, we studied, we talked to each other, and we adjusted. And we had the same, and we're all here, and, and, and that was another change that happened. Um, and so, and then we, you know, we, um, we started to become more aware of racial differences and that we weren't reflective of the community around us. And some of us, um, began to go, got, get involved in some things outside of here. We would, if, and we, about five or six years ago, we decided to change Martin Luther King Day from a holiday to a a program on Martin Luther King. And we would invite people and people could have reading and discussions of Martin Luther King, do some work in the community. We sat out in front, had a table and people made little tokens for the tree for people who had died by violence, like a GSO offering. So all of a sudden then we're opening ourselves, we're changing, we're saying, we're not gonna have a holiday. We're gonna have something that's not a sashin, but that's a day honoring Martin Luther King. And, and during this time also, you know, we had many of us, um, this is, you know, like feels like we know it was another world because of what's happened with COVID. You know, when there was a women's march or a march for Black Lives or wherever, we would call people and let people know we're going. If you want to meet at BCC, we can carpool. We can go to the Gay Pride Parade. Yes, we can all go together. That still happens. But that, and that's part of our practice. Part of our practice is saving all beings, whoever they are, wherever they are, however, what, in doing whatever it takes. And it means changing how we think about things. And um, a couple of years ago, or maybe it was only a year ago, Sandeep told me, I was coordinator and Sandeep came to me and said, I, I really am called to start a BIPOC group. And we brought to the, you know, to the practice committee and the practice committee was very supportive and there's been a BIPOC group. So just like, as we had a women's group, as we had, we, we have, and we've, we've expanded our consciousness to say a BIPOC group is part of our practice here at BZC. And as we learn more, as we expand more, as we take in more, we're, it's always going to be changing. And we even have to think about the future. We want to be here for everybody. We want to save all beings, even the people, the, even the people with long eyelashes. <laughs> They're important. Maybe some of us should wear long eyelashes so they feel comfortable. I don't know. 
but that but it's still the idea that we we're in, we're we're growing our our right view is growing and expanding to to take in as much as we can because only then can we truly be an inclusive place and a welcoming place and so that's part of what you know kind of kind of prompted us to start the what was first called an anti-racist group and then started and turned into being called a culture change group was was to um was to just look more to, to open our minds more to to know to to get humbled by the things we heard some of the things from the BIPOC with the feedback we got of how people had been hurt or harmed by speech that they heard here or by actions we don't want to do that we want to be inclusive and, and helpful and just as we have changed through the years in other, in other groups and with other input and with other movements we change and we, and we grow and we expand ourselves and one of the things that the um that we decided to do when in looking at the dharma lens of um the dharma lens of of practice and making sure that we kept focused on the dharma lens of practice i'm done in one minute awesome. <laughs> um, was to use the eightfold path as a way to look at what we were doing so that we made sure that whatever we do is keeping in mind the eightfold path keeping in mind for our expanding our view looking at our conditioning looking at our thinking look at our thinking and how how our thinking goes to these unwholesome places really quickly and where that might have come from being very care not being correct when we speak but just being aware of our speech and its impact on other people more aware you know being careful about how we greet people or how we are with people. This is part of our practice regardless, right? It's not special. It's just a continuum of that. And so that's, that's kind of, that's kind of I have I see, how I see the kind of evolution here. And that we, we've, all, we've, we've at times been resistant to things. It wasn't easy to start women's groups and women's machines. You know, it wasn't easy to kind of bring in, um, different people. It wasn't easy, but it, was, but it wasn't hard either. <laughs> it was just how it was. It was, a, it was opening our minds and then opening our hearts and then opening our arms and then, whoops, whoops. And then we, and then people get it. They get that we're different. You know, there has to be some feeling change. There's a change that we don't always know, don't aren't always aware of. There's a, we, we can't help but change when we have more input, when we have more understanding of other people's reality. So when I go back to, you know, my understanding of my COVID experience, I, I really felt the other reality of, of people. And I think the same thing goes for, I just finished reading a book, Nightwomen, about slavery in Jamaica. Um, and you know, I exposed myself to something that was incredibly painful. But in exposing myself to it and toughing through it, I, 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 I felt again that I had to open again, open again to more. Even if it's painful, I have to open again to more because that's, that's the only way that I can be helpful to actually get 
that kind of suffering get in my body and my mind. So on that, <laughs> any questions? There's a burning question. Oh. <laughs> and Jerry has a dopathon uh, opportunity this afternoon. That's so right. Away. Yeah. I'm sorry I went over, but I felt like I had to say what I had to say. Thank you. <laughs> 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 Dilly.